All right. I think the kids are mostly out there now, so let's, uh, let's bow in prayer as we prepare to enter God's word. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these children that you have blessed us with. We thank you for each one of them, Lord, that they are special to you, created in your image with unique personalities and gifts and plans that you have for them in the present and the future. And so we just pray your blessing on them, Lord. Be with uh, Matt and Heidi as they teach Children's Church this morning. And just may it be a great morning of spending time in your word and in fellowship with each other. So bless them, Lord. Father, we thank you for this word of yours that we can dive into again this morning. We thank you, Lord, how rich it is and how much there is for us to unpack and to apply to our own lives. And so I pray, Father, this morning once more by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our minds, open our hearts to receive your word, to understand it. And further, Lord, give us obedient hearts to be able to have the willingness to obey you and the strength required to live it out when we leave this place. And so we ask for all of these things in your name. I pray may the words be yours. Amen. Today's message is entitled, Everyday Essentials of Christian Living. Now, last week we looked at gifts within the body that God has given for the building up of the church, and there was a general emphasis on the first part of our church's mission statement, which is serving with our hands, the the hands-on practical aspects of Christian living. And we looked at the idea that Christ has no hands but ours in this physical world, in the physical way. But today we're moving on to the second theme as a a primary theme for this text, which is loving with our hearts. There's a story you may have heard before of a professor of childhood psychology who professed a great love for children. He just loved kids. The only thing was that this professor who professed a great love for children had no children of his own. And so whenever he saw a parent with actual children of their own, scolding their children for something wrong they had done or for misbehaving, he would go up and say to them, you should love your child, not punish him. So one hot summer day, the professor was repairing his concrete driveway. Finally, after several hours of hard work, he finished patching up the cement. He laid down his trowel. He wiped the perspiration from his forehead and he started towards the house. Well, just then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a mischievous little neighbor boy sneaking over and just about to put his foot right in the fresh concrete to leave a fresh footprint there. Well, infuriated at the boldness of this boy who would mess up his fresh, brand new concrete, he turns around, he rushes back, he grabs the boy, he bends him over his knee, and he's about to give him a good paddling. Well, just then, a neighbor happened to be looking out the window and called out, Watch it, Professor. Don't you remember? You must love the boy, not punish him. Well, at this, the professor yelled back indignantly, I do love him in the abstract, just not in the concrete. (laughs) Now, some of you might have to think about that a second longer, and we know you'll get it when you laugh, so... Loves him in the abstract, just not in the concrete. Well, in today's text, in Romans 12, verses 9 to 13, Paul takes the very complex doctrines that we have been through in the the preceding 11 chapters. 
The complex doctrines that we've been through in these past months of our justification, our sanctification, and all of these things that that God has done that are quite complex. And he takes them now from the somewhat abstract realm of intellectual understanding, and he's now bringing it down into the concrete realm of practical everyday living, from the abstract to the concrete. And that's what we've been going through in these past weeks of so much that is packed into Romans chapter 12 is all about the concrete applications of those first 11 chapters of Romans, taking abstract understanding and putting work boots on it, so to speak. And so this builds off of last week's list of the seven essential spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to individuals to use, and again again that emphasis on using them within the body for the building up of the church as a whole. And so now he's shifting again into a practical section of everyday essentials of Christian living in not the corporate sense now, but in the personal sense of each individual. These are things that every last one of us, there's application for us to take home with us today to find ways to live this out wherever we are, in our family, whatever context we are, in workplace, Colleagues, family, friends, strangers, neighbors, you name it, there's an application here for every last one of us. Now, in sharp contrast to Paul's typical style of using often long and complex arguments, he here shifts into a very rapid-fire style of giving these short, sharp, crisp instructions. One after the other, just rapid-fire until the very end of the chapter. Now, in Greek writings, this was a common way of teaching called perinesis. So this was a a teaching style that he decided to adopt to just cram a whole bunch of practical stuff into a very short section, perinesis. It's very similar to the Hebrew style of teaching called Proverbs. And of course, we know that there's a whole book of Proverbs given to us in the Bible, which again are short, sharp instructions that have practical application or wisdom for everyday living. Now here we see that each instruction Paul gives is loosely connected to each other, but they're not necessarily laid out in any particular order as the main themes are repeated and scattered throughout the section, sort of one after the other. I will also remind you that these practical instructions here on the everyday essentials of Christian living, they can only be truly and actively lived out by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This is not a legalistic uh, checklist to live out in our own strength. These are not things that we can do by the effort of our own flesh or our own will. These things can only be truly lived out in in the context of what we've been learning about, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who as we yield to him, as we keep in step with him, it is then that we are able to live out these things in practical ways as the Spirit empowers and guides us to do so. So we must remember that we are dependent on God to implement these things. So now let's dive into them. If you don't have your Bibles open there yet, please turn there with me again. Romans chapter 12, and we're beginning in verse 9, where we'll go through each one of these bullet points one at a time. So verse 9 begins with this. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. And so, our first point for this morning's text is simple. We love by being sincere. We love by being sincere. So, we have it up here on our church mission statement, loving with our hearts. So, by this we could say, yes, sincerely loving with our hearts. 
But then we must ask the question, what does sincere love look like? What does it look like? Well, sometimes when we ask a question like that, it can be helpful for us to understand by first looking at its exact opposite. So then I'll ask the question, what does insincere love look like? Well, a good example of that is this infamous letter that a woman once wrote to her ex-fiancé, which read like this. Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I have felt ever since breaking off our engagement. Please say you'll take me back because no one could ever take your place in my heart. Please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. Now, apart from the P.S., you might just take it at face value and say, well, yes, this is sincerely expressed love. But once we know that this letter has been written by an ex-fiancé only after he has won the lottery, well, then we ask the question, I think rightly, how sincere does this sudden profession of love actually sound? Sounds about as phony as a $3 bill, right? It's on, it's on that level. So there is an obvious example of what insincere love looks like. And so clearly we know we should not be like that. But what about when insincere love's not quite so obvious? Well, interestingly enough, the word sincere, our English word for it, comes from two Latin words combined. So the two Latin words are sign, S-I-N-E, sign, and seer, C-E-R-E. So sign and seer combined together to make our word sincere. Now, sign and seer, literally put together in the Latin, means no wax. Now, what does that have to do with sincerity? Well, let me explain it to you. No wax. Where did this come from? Well, it came from, in ancient times, potters, who would be the ones making clay pots, or, or ceramics, or, or whatever, but potters, they would sometimes take wax and use it to fill in the gaps or cracks in broken or cracked pottery. So you see, when they were crafting something, and then the, there's the heating process to make it hard, sometimes cracks would appear, making it essentially useless. But rather than throwing that work away and gaining no money for it, they would use wax to fill in those cracks, they would then paint over them, and so whoever bought this wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a good, uncracked piece of pottery or one that had been cleverly repaired with wax and paint over the top. So at first glance, you can't tell the difference. However, as soon as this pot was put over a fire or any sort of heat was applied to it, well, what would happen to the wax? It would melt. And very quickly, the paint covering it would crack, and yes, the pot would start to leak. And so then, honest pottery makers would have to try to separate themselves or distance themselves from this practice by declaring to customers at the outset when they sold it to them that this pottery was sincere, no wax. It was pure. It was real. So likewise... Our love must not have cracks in it. It must be sincere, no wax. Not, not an impure, dishonest love where we fill it in with wax to cover it up cleverly. Instead, we must have sincere love. 
And the only sure test of whether or not your love or mine is truly sincere, like the clay pot, is that it must be applied to the fire. Up until a time of testing, of fire, of trial, it's pretty easy to just say, well, yeah, my love's sincere, of course it is. But how does it respond when adversity is applied? Because you see, while loving God or loving others, of course, it's relatively easy when times are good, when there's no heat, when circumstances are rosy, the road is smooth. Continuing to love, however, becomes another thing entirely when times are bad, when circumstances are dark and the road gets rough, when the heat gets ratcheted up, that is the test of whether or not love is truly sincere. And so just as certainly as the heat revealed whether or not the pottery was sincere, so too is the heat of trials and adversity, which reveals whether or not our love for God first and then our love for others is truly sincere as well. So then I ask the question again, what then does sincere love look like? Well, first off, it looks like the cross of Jesus Christ. We have it up here as a constant reminder. Sometimes we take it for granted because it's always before us, but we need to look at it again. Sincere love looks like the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the Greek word that Paul used here for love, in this exact passage where he says, love must be sincere, That word for love is the Greek word agape. And you probably know what that means. Agape love means the active love of God for his son and for his people and as expressed through the giving of his son upon the cross. So active love through self-sacrifice. That is agape love. And so here we see that Paul is not talking about some lesser form of love when he says it must be sincere. He's talking about agape love, not passive but active. For as Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that is the highest form of love. It's not a passive expression of love. I love you, my friend. It is the willingness to lay down your life for your friend and then to actually go through with it. In response to this great truth, the Apostle Paul wrote back in Romans 5, verses 7 to 8, a passage we looked at some time ago. There, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, Jesus did not love us from afar. He did not love us only when it was easy. Instead, he embodied the highest possible form of agape love, that when the fire of adversity was at its maximum intensity, rather than giving up on us, rather than stepping away, remaining distant, Jesus stepped up. Jesus stepped up to the cross. And while we were even still his enemies, he laid down his life for us so that we could become his friends. Isn't that incredible? We were enemies and he still laid down his life for us so that, forgiven, redeemed, we could become his friends and brothers and sisters and children of God. That is what sincere love looks like. 
So in our own relationship to God and towards each other, as we look at this, the ultimate highest standard of what it looks like, if we ever lose sight of what our love towards God and towards each other is also supposed to be and to look like, we just need to look back at the cross and be reminded once more. And so just as Christ's love towards us was proved sincere upon the cross, may our love for him and others be equally proven sincere in our hour of testing as well. And so this is the test of sincere love and what we are called to as believers. Number two, we move on to Paul's second statement. Verse 9 continues, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So secondly, we love by hating evil and clinging to what is good. Isn't that an interesting statement? We love by hating. Does that not sound like a contradiction? What is Paul really getting at with this? What does hate have to do with love? In fact, this word hate is very strong. In the Greek, it's one of the strongest words that he could possibly use. It means that you abhor and revile what is evil so strongly and with such intensity that it in fact causes you to shudder. It's this, it's this revulsion that it makes you shudder. You clench your teeth. You just can't stand it. And so like I said, at first glance, it seems odd and out of place that Paul would use this word hate in the context of just having described what sincere love looks like. But this wasn't by chance or, or, or coincidence that Paul did it this way. He was making a very pointed comment that the two are actually linked together. For you see, to have sincere love for God and to have sincere hatred for evil are two sides of the same coin. As the Bible commentator Morris writes, true love involves a deep hatred for all that is evil. The person who really loves with the deep fervor of Christian agape will have a holy hatred for every evil thing. Now, the fact is this. There is such a thing as good in this world, and there is such a thing as evil. Good and evil are realities in the world in which we abide in today. Yet today, we can look around and see that the popular philosophy of, yes, this dark world, as Paul described it, the philosophy of this dark world has so blurred the lines between good and evil, between what was once considered black and white, those lines have become so blurred that all anyone sees anymore is varying shades of gray, degrees of, of gray. But in our world today, to say that, no, this is black and this is white, no, you're being intolerant. We need, to, we need to look at this differently. And that is what our world, the philosophy of our world, has done with good and evil. Everything is blurred. Nothing can actually be considered concretely good or bad. To even declare in today's society that something is indeed good and that something is indeed evil is now considered intolerant and the height of bigotry. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, however, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So the source of all that is good is God himself, in whom there is not even a speck of darkness, a speck of evil. And so to love God is to love all that is good. But verse 6, John continues. 
If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So this means, in very blunt terms, that if we claim to love God and all that is good, and yet we continue to dabble in sin and to water down or even condone that which is evil, that which is opposite of God, then, John says, we are living a lie and the truth is not in us. Now, it is a spiritually dangerous reality. And and, and I can't stress this enough, that this is a spiritually dangerous reality that many today who profess to love God, who profess to follow Christ, have become so intertwined with the dark culture around us and, and the false philosophy of our world that waters everything down to the point where there is no longer good or evil, that they have become almost numb and passive towards sin and evil. It no longer causes them to shudder or to be revolted at evil any longer. Sin doesn't shock them. They're desensitized to it to the extent that they can hardly even discern what is right or wrong anymore. And you see, the Bible tells us that God himself hates all sin. In fact, there's passages that list specific things that God hates. And so, just like God, we are called to hate sin as well. We're not to be intertwined with it to the point where we just get so used to it, it doesn't even bother us anymore. That is the exact opposite of what we are called to as believers. And so, if we find within ourselves, if we find within ourselves a lack of hatred towards sin, if we find within ourselves just a resignation towards it, where we just like, ah, it's no big deal, this doesn't really bother me anymore. You know, it's very well that our consciences, we are searing them. And the Bible talks about that those who sear their conscience with a hot iron, we can quench the Holy Spirit, who at first, there's certain sins that we're exposed to, the Spirit within us just is revolted by it, and we feel it, and we say, no, Lord, never again, and forgive me, I will never go there again. But if we keep going there again and again, We are quenching the Spirit's fire within us. We are searing our conscience. And inevitably, we can get to the point of just shrugging at sin. It doesn't bother us anymore. And so if that describes you in any way, shape, or form this morning, we need to confront this and address it. For to truly love God is to truly hate sin. Now let's be honest for a moment. Most of us don't hate sin and evil as much as we should. And I'll include myself in that. I find in myself that I don't hate it to the degree that I should, especially within myself. That's where it's most telling. It's much easier to hate sin in the world or in someone else than it is to hate it within yourself. But you know what? I'll tell you. There's sins that I find lurking within myself that by the Spirit's help I have come to hate. And the deeper that hatred grows, the more my desire is to stay in step with the Spirit and to not give in to those temptations or to those sins. But as long as they don't really bother me, to tolerate them, to dabble with them, then it's very easy to continue to do so. And so listen, my friends. If, in fact, you find in yourself that sometimes you even like your sin, not just you don't hate it, you like your sin because you enjoy it, because it gives you pleasure, then listen. Pleasure is only for a season, and it's always fleeting, 
And sin will always take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. Remember that. You dabble in it with it for a season, but then next time it's going to take you a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. It's the way sin works. It's never one thing. It always wants to drag you further. And so if this is where you find yourself, then listen to the instruction of Peter, who was addressing this exact thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He said this, Dear friends, He's writing to believers. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see, while sin may seem desirable and good and harmless in the moment, in reality, it is waging war against your soul. Every time, it is waging war against your soul. So like Lot and his family, who when the angels came and told them, flee for your lives, God's judgment is coming upon this city. Like Lot, I urge you to flee, flee, run away from whatever sin that you may be currently dabbling in or whatever evil you may currently be condoning. And then unlike Lot's wife, do not look back. Do not look back and and long for what has, has been in the past. Keep running forward towards God. And then Paul says, cling to him. Don't just get away from the evil. Cling to what is good. Cling to God and all that he stands for and represents. So now just to be completely clear as we finish off this section. We are called to hate the sin, but not the sinner. We are called to hate the sin, but not the sinner. The book of Jude, verses 22 and 23, helps us to balance this out, how to love the sinner and yet hate the sin. There, Jude writes, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy. So that's the loving the sinner part. But now here's the hating the sin part, where he continues, To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So Jude is saying, love the people enough to get in there and do whatever it takes to snatch them from the fire. But listen, at the same time, hate the very thing that you're, that you're saving them from. Even the clothing that was in that, that lifestyle, hate even that. So he's saying, love the people. Put yourself on the line to help save them. But hate what you're, what you're saving them from. Another analogy is this. We are called to do everything we can to rescue people that are drowning. But all the while, we hate the very thing that is causing them to drown or trying to drown them. So now the catch is that sometimes in the process, in trying to rescue someone, we have to act in a way that that person who we are seeking to rescue will interpret as being unloving. This sometimes happens. Where, where your good intentions that are actually sincere love towards them, they interpret as being unloving and perhaps even bigoted or hateful that you would dare confront them about certain behaviors or sin. However, this is part of what snatching people from the fire looks like, that some people in being attempted to be snatched from the fire like it there and they don't want to leave. And so sometimes we have to tell people the hard truth in sincere love. And because of the urgent danger of their situation, it is in fact the most loving thing that you could possibly do, even if they do not receive it that way. 
In fact, I would say, and I will put this on, on the record, that the most unloving thing that we could possibly do to anyone is to see them in their sin, is to see them drowning, and simply walk away. I think that is the most unloving thing that we could possibly do, is to just walk away for fear of, oh, what if they misinterpret my, my intent? What if they don't want to be rescued? Whatever the reasons are, to just walk away is the most unloving thing that we could possibly do. So we love by hating evil and clinging to what is good. Third, verse 10, Paul continues, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And so we love others by being devoted to them and honoring them above ourselves. Here the Greek word for love that Paul uses is not agape, but phileo, which means brotherly affection. It's that robust kind of affection and devotion and loyalty that siblings and family members share with each other. And so now Paul is saying as members of a new family, the church, it may not be blood ties here, but it's a deeper tie than blood ties. It's the tie of faith and the same spirit. And so now we're a new body, a new family. And in the same way, we are called to share brotherly love and affection towards each other. Now, some of you might remember that the Olive Garden restaurant used to have the slogan, maybe they still do, when you're here, you're family. Has anyone heard that slogan before? Yeah, when you're here, you're family. Well, I like to think that whoever came up with that slogan for the Olive Garden restaurant was inspired by the New Testament because it literally comes straight from the Bible. You know, Jesus' message to, to his disciples and, and the, the messages of Paul and the other apostles written down in the word and it's been repeated and embraced for nearly 2,000 years is that in the church, when you're here, you're family. Our call to worship from Galatians 6 verse 10 goes further to tell us how to treat members in our new family. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So we're supposed to do good to everyone, but go out of your way to find ways to do good to your family of believers. John Wesley famously summarized this passage like this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you can. Do good. Now, what does doing good look like in practice? Well, if we jump ahead to verse 13, Paul gives us a couple of practical examples. There he writes, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So, in our house, Leanne and I, we have this maxim that we've repeated many times to our own children, and it goes like this. Sharing is caring. <laughs> any other parents repeated this to your own kids or at any point? Are we the only ones? Sharing is caring. You've heard it if you don't repeat it. Well, in our house, we say that a lot. So, um, what is one of the hardest things for anyone to do? It's to share, right? To share your things. If you don't believe me, you haven't been spending enough time together with toddlers, right? Go to toddlers, ask them what their favorite toy is, and then ask them to share it, right? Let's just do a little experiment and see how that goes, right? 
You're going to find out how well this has been ingrained into them, this lesson of sharing is caring, by their response. Because their default response is, no, I don't want to share. I want to keep what's mine. And so we see that, of course, mostly in, in little children. But it's not just little children, who, little children who struggle with this. Adults struggle with it, too. So may we recommit ourselves to sharing, and the emphasis here is sharing with those in need. It's good to share in general, but keep a special eye open for those who are struggling, those who are down, those who are in a, in a tough spot. If we go out of our way to look for those situations and to share, in this way the body, the needs are being met as each, as each one does its part. And so in this way, as we, as we share, as we show hospitality, the family is built up and needs are met. And so now, fourthly, verse 11. Paul continues in the theme, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And so here we love God by serving him with spiritual passion and zeal. Now, the way I once explained this verse in a youth group Bible study was like this. Don't be a spiritual slacker. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Don't be a slacker. Keep your passion up. Now, just this past week, Leanne and I were driving east up South Railway Street right here in Clarney. And as we drove up the street, we saw this whole line of people doing CrossFit training. They were out on the street. They were walking up the street. The only thing was that as they walked... Each of them were carrying a massive deadlift bar straight over their head, walking along like this up the street. Some of them had big weights on the ends yet, and you could just see as you drove by the strain on their faces. Their faces were red, perspiration was running down, and you could see this was no walk in the park. This was hard work. But I also noticed as they went by that some of these people didn't necessarily look particularly fit. Some of them were only carrying just a bar with no weights on them whatsoever, and you would probably extrapolate from that. They've just started, and people can sign up anytime. And I'll tell you this much, as I went by and saw them, I had zero desire to sign up <laughs> and to join them. However, we also took note that the ones furthest down the street carrying the most weight was a group of young hockey players. And I can tell you that these young hockey players, they're motivated because they have a goal in sight. The hockey season's coming. They want to be ready. They want to be fit. They want to be prepared. And they have an excitement about what is to come. And I can tell you this much, that if I were to be foolish enough to attempt to join them on the ice, they would skate circles around me and, and probably crush me with body checks as well. Like, I wouldn't stand a chance going up against these young guys because I could see how fit they were, how motivated they were. And so you see, just as you or I can't rightfully expect to be able to compete in playing hockey by lounging on our couch with a steady diet of chips and pop, we also can't expect to be spiritually fit and strong and successful in the life of faith if we're rarely, if ever, in prayer. Rarely, if ever, in the word. Rarely or ever in service. Or rarely or ever in Christian fellowship. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't. We can't be spiritual slackers and expect to be spiritually fit. Instead, we must remain intentional 
and active in exercising all the disciplines and activities of our faith in order to continually fuel our spiritual passion and zeal for the Lord. Now, there's a story told of a college freshman named Smitty. And Smitty became the field goal kicker for the college football team. Now, at the very end of one game, he was called to go in and to kick the game-tying field goal as time expired. But Smitty, however, didn't want to just tie the game. He wanted to make his mark by winning the game, by being the hero. And so he changed the play in the huddle. So the ball was hiked directly to him, and with the football in his grasp, he began to run for the end zone, what would be the game-winning touchdown. However, along the way, he was clobbered, and in the process of being clobbered, the ball popped loose. It was fumbled. The opposing team player ran after the ball, scooped it up, and began running the other way towards the opposite end zone. Other players on the team began chasing after him, but they just couldn't catch him. But then, out of nowhere, someone started gaining ground on the man with the football. Running like a streak of lightning, everyone was shocked when they recognized that it was Smitty. It was the kicker who somehow found speed that no one knew he could possess. He caught up to the man, he tackled him, and stopped him from scoring the touchdown. Watching all of this dumbfounded, the coaches from the sidelines just couldn't believe what Smitty had just done. The assistant coach then turned to the head coach and said to him, Did you know that Smitty had wheels like that? He beat our best athletes and made the tackle. To which the head coach replied quite seriously, I'll tell you why Smitty ran like that. The other guys were running because they were supposed to. Smitty was running because he knew his life depended on it. Now, my friends, in the same way, you and I are to live like our life depends on it. That's what Paul is saying here. Keep your spiritual fervor. Run hard. Run like your life depends on it. Not out of fear for punishment from a head coach, but for the joy set before us that we are running this race of faith because Jesus has already shown us the way and we are victors in him. And so in the same way, not out of fear, but out of desire, love for the Lord, keep your passion, keep your zeal, run hard. Because listen, our souls, our lives are secure in Christ through faith and by the grace he's given to us. However, the lives and souls of others may well depend on our effort on their behalf. And so may we love sincerely. May we love by hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. May we love by being devoted to each other in brotherly affection, honoring one another, sharing with each other and showing hospitality. And may we show our love to God through serving him with spiritual passion and zeal, for he is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we thank you so much that we are your children We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you showed us the way by the cross. And so, Lord Jesus, as we follow after you, you, give us a sincere love for you and one for another. May we show it, Lord, in the time of testing. May we show it in practical ways. May we look for ways and opportunities to do good, and especially to those in this family of faith. And Lord, may we also be urgent as we seek to save others 
Lord, knowing that in this dark world there is evil and people need to be saved from it and from their own sin, and you are the only way. And so, Father, give us spiritual zeal and passion as we do this. May you give us what we need to live this out, Father, to run hard, to follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.